Hey everybody, welcome back to Going Deep There in Watson, and welcome back to Future Week, or Futurist Week. I haven't really come up with a good name for it yet, but you've probably already heard the episode with Kevin Kelly that we released earlier this week. We talked about his book, The Inevitable, and all the technological evolutions that are right on the horizon for our species. That was a great one. If you missed it, make sure you go check that out. But my guest today is Robin Hansen. Robin is a professor of economics at George Mason University and recently wrote a book called The Age of M. M, spelled E-M, is short for emulation, which is one of the predictions. Robin even admits that it's not what he's saying is going to happen. It's one of a multitude of possibilities potentially on our horizon, but really goes into deep detail exploring a world where humans have their brains copied and turned into computer software, computer programs, and effectively become a human-like artificial intelligence that is responsible for moving the world's economy along. You can have disagreements about the likelihood of this happening, whether this is the technology, whether this is the type of technology that's going to be developed, all perfectly valid. But it was really interesting to talk to Robin and allow him to paint a very vivid, clear, detailed picture of what this future could hold. His justification, as you'll hear, is that he believes that creating these really vivid portraits will help us prepare for all the potential scenarios, leaving us more prepared when one of those comes true as a species. So very interesting to hear from him there. I think at the very least, this episode will capture imagination. And be sure to tweet at him, at Robin Hansen, if you have any questions or want to learn more or check out the book, Age of M. But for your preview, here's my interview with Robin Hansen. So Robin, thank you so much for coming to my podcast, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Aaron. This is really fun. We're doing a bit of a run on futurism and looking a little bit further out. I think it's always a challenge for people to take a long-term view on any of their decisions, whether it's uh, thinking about their career a couple uh, years down the line or other kind of life decisions. But but your book, Age of M, that's now out, uh, is really taking a bit of a further view out there, kind of in the next hundred years, what can we expect? And there's there's lots of speculation that gets rolled around the internet, but you've really hammered down on a pretty specific vision and idea. So to start off, I wanted to just give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about the core philosophy and idea in your book, and maybe a little bit about where you got this idea or what uh, inspired you to kind of explore futurism and these type of predictions as a, uh, as a career. So I've long been a science fiction and futurism fan. I've long been hanging around people who like to talk and think about the subjects. But when I finally went back to school, uh, graduate school, at the age of 34 uh, to study social science and eventually become an economist, I was all the more impressed that uh, most futurism and science fiction just doesn't reflect much social science. Uh, Most of the people who do it and like it uh, know a lot of physical science, but they don't know much social science. And so they tend to think that whatever speculations pop into their heads about social outcomes are pretty much the best anybody can do. But in studying social science, I thought that was very wrong. I thought 
you could learn a lot. And so my first semester after uh, in graduate school, uh, Christmas vacation, I wrote a little paper where I tried to apply my standard uh, first year economic concepts to a particular futurist scenario that I'd heard about for a long time, uh, brain emulations. Wrote a little paper on that. I published it uh, the next year. It was called If Uploads Come First, The Crack of a Future Dawn. And uh, that sort of set off to the side and I continued on with my career, but that sort of uh, stuck in the back of my mind. And later on when uh, I had tenure and I had some freedom and I was trying to decide what project to focus on, that project ended up being my guess for my best choice. Uh, I heard about half the people who get a book project never finish the book and I wanted to pick something that would suck me in and get me to do it. So the, uh, the basic attitude here is that um, you can just project current trends forward, or you can imagine trend disrupting future technologies, or you can think about the social consequences of trend disrupting technologies. And it's that last third task that I've taken on that a lot of people don't even think is possible. So under this point of view, you break the future into various kinds of very disruptive technologies that might show up, and, and in particular, which one might show up first, and then you try to take each scenario defined by which disruptive technology would show up first and analyze its consequences. So I've taken just one of those. I don't claim uh, it has most of the probability. I'd say the future is important enough that uh, it's worth having 100 books, exploring 100 scenarios, uh, in which case we only need the scenario to be a 1% chance to be worth exploring. Uh, so the scenario I've chosen is brain emulations or uploads, uh, and we can explain what that is in a minute. And I've taken a quite unusual degree of, of focus and emphasis to work out the, the consequences of that one scenario. And in part, I'm trying to show people that you can do a lot working out the consequences of a very particular technology scenario in order to uh, shame or inspire other people into doing the same for other scenarios. Yeah, it's very clear how much thought and how well built out your philosophy is just from your explanation of these ideas in different talks, the book, uh, and these further details, and really what you're outlining, just to, to further clarify for the audience, is we've had these different eras as a species, hunter-gatherer, to farming and agriculture, to the Industrial Revolution, and you're proposing a similar shift on the near horizon. So can you just go into a little bit more detail of what the age of M looks like and the underlying technology that is going to enable something like that? Right, well, just as you say in historical context, uh, actually history does seem to be somewhat neatly broken into ages, uh, which makes it then plausible to talk about what will the next age be. As you say, there was the age of animals before humans, the age of humans, uh, for hunter-gatherers, the age of farming, the age of industries. These were, in a sense, somewhat distinct ages in that they had distinct you know, modes of production and ways people related, and they tended to have consistent growth rates internally. Uh, each mode grew at a certain exponential rate, and then uh, when the next mode show up, there was a sudden transition to a much higher growth rate. And so the idea is that that could happen again sometime in the next century or so. There could be another transition to an even faster growth rate uh, with a very different mode of production and a very different uh, style of civilization. And the question is, what could that be? So my key working assumption is that artificial intelligence, smart robots, is what makes this next big revolution possible. It's not my idea, of course, original. Uh, lots of people have talked about that. But I focused on one particular kind of smart robot, a certain way to produce them, brain emulations. And it happens to produce a kind of robot that's especially human, especially similar to us, and therefore more understandable. So the idea is to port the software that's in the human brain. 
Today, if you have an old computer and it has software running on it, and you'd like to have software like that running on a new computer, you could stare at the old software, try to understand its basic principles, and then write new software on the new computer that acts like the old one. People sometimes do that. But another approach is to port the old software. That is, you write an emulator on the new computer that makes the new computer look like the old computer to the software, and then you can just move the old software over. So we could do that for the human brain if we could emulate brain cells. So the idea is that we scan a particular person in high spatial and chemical resolution to see where all the cells are and inside each cell where the parts are and what chemical densities are there. And then we have models, computer models, for how each of the cells work in terms of taking input signals and changing internal state and sending output signals. And if we have good enough models for all the cells and we have a good enough scan showing where all the cells are and, and what type they are, then we should have be able to make a good enough model of the whole thing. Good enough model. Uh, would have the same overall input-output behavior. So we could hook it up to hands, eyes, ears, mouth, and we would send in signals uh, in terms of the same way a person would get, uh, in terms of out hearing things and uh, feeling things, and uh, then it would respond with the same sort of signals. And therefore, if we put it in a robot body or virtual reality, we could ask it questions, it would talk back, we could ask it to do jobs, it might do them. That's the thing that changes everything. That is a brain emulation. This seems like it's related to the brain initiative that the White House put out a couple years ago with the goal of mapping the entire brain. That's that's something that they're really pushing to do within the next, next decade. And that would be the kind of the underlying assumption that we have a much more nuanced understanding of the brain than we do today. Is that accurate? Certainly mapping the brain is along the path toward producing an emulation. We're still a long way off. I wouldn't tell you it's going to happen in the next 10 or 20 or even 30 <laughs> years, uh, but plausibly within the next century. So let's just break down a little bit more. Once this emulation technology is possible, what would it look like? Who would get emulated? What would that process be uh, maybe in the early stages? And then as time moves on, would it get easier? So most income in the world today goes to pay human workers. They're very valuable. If you could have a machine that's cheap that substitutes for human workers, uh, you can make trillions of dollars selling that access to that machine. It's enormously valuable. So uh, obviously the first things people will do is they will try to create emulations of productive people, lawyers, software engineers, etc., and sell rent access to those things uh, so that they can get a lot of money for their investment in their technology. Uh, so very early on, they will be searching for very productive people, people willing to work in this new world, people uh, eager to uh, try out the new world and willing to accept all the strange changes that they'll experience there. And that will be the start of the age of M when uh, a lot of companies try to sell these new devices. Now, very quickly, presumably uh, many firms will try to sell them and they'll push the cost down in competition to the cost of the hardware. And as the cost of the hardware falls, then the number of these emulations will just explode. There'll be a vast number of these emulations and they will pretty much take over all the jobs that humans do. They will just be cheaper than humans all across the board. And they won't be like typical humans. They will be like the best humans. So there's no point if you can uh, copy many different quality humans not to copy the very best and try to make a deal and sell access to those. So most emulations will probably be copies of the few hundred most productive humans, the, the few hundred humans that, that work best in the emulation world. So they are Nobel Prize winner, Olympic gold medalist, billionaire, head of state, that sort of quality people. Uh, so they are very human in the sense that their psychology and styles are 
near the human range, but they're not typically human in that they are just much more productive. That will make them more smart, conscientious, workaholic, middle-aged, perhaps religious, married. Uh, there's a bunch of parameters that we can predict about how they'll be different from ordinary people just because they're very productive. Uh, but they are not strange aliens or crazy robot things that we can't understand. They are very human. Imagining some people might have a few hairs on the back of their neck standing up right now. Can you talk a little bit about what would happen to the non-billionaires, the non-elites who aren't having an emulation uh, made of them? What type of economic future they have? What relevance might they have to society? So initially, the ordinary humans own this entire new economy. They own all the firms. They own all the patents. They own all the real estate. And even if their percentage of the wealth of this economy slowly declines, they'll still own a lot of it. And this economy will grow very fast. It might plausibly double every month rather than uh, today it doubles every 15 years. So that's how fast your investments also would grow. So if you have any substantial investments, uh, they might plausibly double every month. So collectively, humans will be very rich and getting very rich fast. But how rich any one person is depends on how much wealth they have or have access to. So it would be very important to recommend to people that they try to diversify their assets, they try to buy insurance, they try to arrange sharing arrangements so that they are not stuck not having anything when a transition like this happens. Basically, the entire human race must retire, and if they have a decent uh, retirement savings plan, uh, they will all do very well. I see. This, it's really interesting to hear uh, this kind of futuristic take coming from such an economically grounded perspective. I think that, you know, just in my reading, exploring some of these topics, there's a lot of people who come at it purely from a technological standpoint or just kind of making predictions from the standpoint of what will this technology enable or disable or take away? Are there any other ways in which economics has influenced your view uh, and your development of this thesis? Enormously, that is, I'm mostly using economics in figuring out the, the scenario here. So as we just said, humans basically retire and get rich quickly. So there honestly isn't that much to say about the humans, but there's an enormous amount to say about the emulations. They are living in a very competitive world with their wages near uh, their subsistence level. And so it's a more familiar Malthusian world. And there's a lot we can analyze about that uh, since we know that it's uh, near subsistence and driven very much by productive considerations. We can analyze um, sort of how many hours of work they a, a day they make, how concentrated are labor markets. We can analyze uh, how fast they typically run since emulations can go fast or slow. We can think about when they would make copies and when they'd be willing to erase the copies. We can think about them clustering together into cities versus being spread out over the land. We can think about their political concentration. We can think about um, how well democracy might work. We can think about new units of organization. We have a lot of uh, ways to apply economics to understand this new world. Will they be interacting socially or like when I think when some people think of a robot or a computer, they think of just something that can grind away and work and work and work and never need time off, never need to rest, never need to have kind of the social interactions that are so fundamental to the human existence. So this is where the fact that they were very human-like lets us analyze and understand them. So the best model for emulations are the most productive people in the world today the people who are most celebrated, perhaps, for being really good at their jobs. If you meet those people or see them, they do work a lot of their time. They, they tend to be workaholics. They tend to uh, work as much of the time as they can and productively uh, make a contribution. But they do take breaks. They do go to lunch. <laughs> 
they do socialize. Actually, socializing is often an important part of many jobs. Uh, not only do you need to interact with coworkers and bosses and clients and suppliers, uh, you need to uh, often play office politics. And emulations will do all of those things because they are very productive, and that's what very productive people do. And along with having these human qualities, kind of a fundamental human quality is the realization, the some people acceptance or fear of death. Will these M's ever pass on, or are they going to basically exist infinitely? So because they can be represented as computer files, they can be immortal in the same way that houses and cars today can be immortal. That is, if you keep repairing them, they can keep lasting. Uh, so the question is not whether you can keep going, it's whether you choose to and have the resources to. So one, I think, safe, relatively reasonable prediction is that these emulations will have a limited career length. We already see with humans that they start out with young with fluid intelligence and end up older with crystallized intelligence, but uh, less able to learn new things and adapt. We see a similar phenomena with lots of other complicated systems, including software systems. And so that probably happens for emulations too. And so eventually they can no longer compete with younger uh, versions and may, they must retire. But retirement can be a lot cheaper for emulations because uh, they can just retire at lower speeds. So the cost of running emulation is proportional to the speed. And that cost proportionality probably applies from human speed up to a million times human speed and down, down to one millionth of human speed. So it's a very wide range. So that means... Is, is that work rate or is that processing speed? Can you just elaborate so, so, on that? So um, the brain is a very parallel system. And so in general, with parallel programs, the more processors you add, the faster it can run. And so basically, if you want to make a brain brain run faster, you can just add more processors and it'll run faster. Or you can take more away and it'll run slower. So this range from a million times faster down to a million times slower is really just a range of how many processors you can add or how much you can slice up a processor. So that's what's going on. You can just have a bigger emulation, a bigger computer, and then it would run the emulation faster. So the fact that you can make an emulation much cheaper by running it slower means that you very rarely need to fear death. Uh, basically what you need to fear is going slow. Uh, so it's a different kind of thing to fear. It's a little less terrifying. So if you run out of resources or you get fired or, or you um, something is stolen and you don't have as many resources as you might have, uh, you'll have to be slower. And that means the world around you will speed up. What does it feel like to be slow? It feels just like it feels to be fast, except the world looks different. The world speeds up. This is kind of mind-bending to really think about this artificial intelligence or robots having the human emotions, human perspectives, human drives and interests. And I think that that also just calls into question what a political landscape would look like in this type of situation. We're, we're very used to right now all sorts of craziness going on, egos and campaign uh, finance reform. We're in desperate need of that as well. Sure. What, what does this future look like? Is there any hope for a, a more, uh, more fair future perhaps? Well, I think and even to just think about it, you really have to step back from the world you live in and look across the whole sweep of history. I, I start my book out with a review of history, a very quick review, of course, just to emphasize how different the eras have been across history. Our farming ancestors from the previous era, uh, they didn't have much democracy. Uh, they had kings uh, and councils sometimes, uh, but not really democracy. That mostly seemed okay with them. And, of course, uh, they had a wide range of policies they applied. Our forager ancestors before them, 
they didn't have a literal democracy, but they had more of a informal consensus. They lived in small bands and they uh, didn't really do anything unless they sort of got everybody to kind of agree on what to do. And that, that is sort of the origin of, I think, of our sense of democracy. So I think the most dramatic thing that ever happened to humans was the transition from foraging to farming. Uh, farming really was quite a different lifestyle and it didn't feel as natural. And so humans had enough cultural plasticity to crank up the conformity and religious pressures enough to get foragers to become farmers. And that meant uh, to accept more domination, ranking, war, leaders, uh, uh, slavery, uh, staying in one place, working more hours a day, monogamy. These were all things that didn't feel entirely natural to foragers, but that uh, farmers came to accept and see as the right way because uh, culture was cranked up to make it happen. As we've gotten rich in the last few hundred years, I think that these pressures that turned us into farmers just don't feel as compelling, and we have slowly drifted back toward forager attitudes. So that has made us more interested in democracy, uh, more leisure, more art, more travel, uh, more democracy, uh, less slavery, uh, less tolerance for inequality and dominance. These are many of the trends over the last uh, few centuries that can be attributed to uh, reverting to forager habits and styles as we've gotten rich. That's all context for saying the emulation world uh, gets poor again. <laughs> that is, the emulations, at least, are near subsistence level, and they need to do a lot of behaviors that are somewhat odd for foragers and farmers and uh, industrialists, really. And the sort of cultural pressures that turned uh, foragers into farmers are available to turn us into M's, uh, into the people who do the things that need to be done in the M world. And so I do predict that they will become more farmer-like in the sense of having stronger social pressures, religion, conformity, in order to um, get them to do as they need. And they, the fears will be stronger because they will be near subsistence level. Those will be credible, credible fears that will make them behave. So because of all that, I think that creates a whole package of attitudes they'll have. And part of that will be they'll be less eager for democracy. That doesn't mean they can't have democracy. They just won't fight quite as hard for it. And the nature of the emulation world also means that one M1 vote just doesn't work because they can vary by speeds enormously. If you just had one M1 vote, then whoever wanted to win the election would just pay for trillions of very slow M's who, who could barely move fast enough to vote. That just didn't, wouldn't work very well. So speed-weighted voting might work, and that's a plausible prediction for systems that use democracy, but um, they wouldn't necessarily be as eager for democracy as us. And actually, their leaders have more advantages than our leaders do. So when we have central leaders in our society, they have a number of disadvantages. One of them is the succession problem. How do they pick the next person? And when emulations can be immortal, they uh, don't necessarily have that succession problem. Leaders today also have a problem of trusting their uh, associates. Who around them uh, can they trust not to betray them in a time of crisis? Emulations can put recent copies of themselves around them to uh, trust in a crisis. So uh, that problem is reduced as well. So for the number of reasons, uh, emulations would plausibly uh, have more strong leaders and less democracy, but still have some democracy. Gotcha. You've laid an absolute monstrous amount of information on us here in the last 25 minutes, Robin. I want to start wrapping up, but before we issue the personal challenge to the audience and direct people to learn more about the book, I want to take things back to kind of a practical application level. Uh, you talked about how folks who have their retirement investments in order and other things like that are going to be okay when this transition starts to occur. Is there any practical advice that you could give that you think is really important 
for folks who are moving into this age? Maybe it's our kids or their kids, uh, things, things that we can be doing right now. So again, it's not right around the corner, but when it comes, it'll come pretty fast. So it might be dangerous to sort of wait until you see it coming before you think about it. Uh, it might be ready to just uh, better to just be ready to sort of have the sort of attitudes and, and, and stance that would handle it well whenever it comes. Um, so, you know, centuries ago when the Industrial Revolution was starting, uh, if you were a you know subsistence farmer out in the countryside, you heard about these factories starting up in the city. One attitude is uh, if you understood what was going to happen, you know, my poor descendants who are poor, you know, subsistence farmers in the countryside, they're going to be uh, pushed aside. They're going to become a minor part of the uh, society and they're not going to matter as much anymore and they won't run things and boo-hoo me and my children. <laughs> Another attitude might be, well, I want my children and their grandchildren to go try to join this new world, to be, to go to the city, to uh, start in the factories, to, to become part of the new industrial economy. I want them to have a chance and maybe they'll succeed. So... That's also an attitude you can have about the simulation world. You could just identify yourself solely as a biological human and say, uh, that's who I am and my, who my children are, and therefore we're going to lose out and be pushed aside and no longer be the center of attention. Or you can say, I'd like my children or my grandchildren to try to their hand at being one of the successful M's, to become part of this new world. So if you want to take that route, the odds are long, but what you want is for your children or grandchildren to be seem very promising and flexible. That is the sort of people who could learn whatever it takes to, to prosper in this new world, who have the grit and determination and flexibility to deal with uh, things when they're strange and things when they're even hard to, you know, get along and, and survive and, and thrive in this new world. That's the sort of thing you might want your children or grandchildren to be ready to, uh, to take a chance to, to compete and win in the new world. One of the things you may have to accept or be ready to accept or you have your children ready to accept is the idea that the very first emulation process will probably be destructive. That is, it'll take a real brain and slice off a real physical labor, layer and scan that layer in two dimensions and then slice off another layer and scan that next layer and so on until in the process of scanning the entire brain, it has sliced off layers of the entire brain, which can no longer be reassembled, i.e. it's destroyed the brain in the process of reading it. So very quickly, the emulation world will have mainly demand for young people. That is, it'll want to scan young humans who are very cap hopefully capable and flexible. And so the emulation world may plausibly try to entice parents of young children to uh, allow them to destructively scan their young children. That's a somewhat harsh and uh, dramatic scenario, but that's a scenario you should think about ahead of time what your answer would be. Wow. Well, that is a lot to think about, Robin. You've answered a lot of questions here today and probably unearthed a few new questions from some of the people out there listening. If they want to get some of those questions answered, we want to direct them to the book. That is The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life When Robots Rule the Earth. Uh, if people want to learn more about you, Robin, what are the digital coordinates that we can direct them to so that they can follow along? I am uh, Hanson, H-A-N-S-O-N dot G-M-U dot E-D-U. And there's also a book page on the book, ageofem.com, ageofm.com. They can learn more about uh, me or the book at either of those locations. Gotcha. We will link to that in the show notes. Uh, that'll be linked to at goingdeepwitharen.com slash podcast, the best place for show notes for this and every episode of the show. Uh, Robin, it's been a blast getting to listen to you speak about this. The amount of thought that you've put into this vision is 
really helpful, helps crystallize things for a lot of people, and I appreciate that along with you sharing your time. I want to give you the mic one last time, though, so that you can take it away with a personal challenge for the audience. Sure. Well, um, I'm told that many of you are young people starting out your careers, uh, wondering where to go or what you can do. And uh, I'd like to emphasize one key fact that many of you may not appreciate. Your lives will be long. You have a lot of time in a lifetime to pursue all sorts of odd projects that other people around you may not support. Yes, it would be nice to get a job doing what you'd like to do and have other people pay you for it. It would be nice to get support from other people around you who would uh, join you in doing something and praise you when you do it. But those things aren't necessary to do a long-term project. Because you live in a rich society, and most of you are pretty smart, if you have a, a thing you really want to do, if you think there's something the world really needs, a project that really should happen, and you have the uh, determination and the uh, ability to do it, uh, you can just do it in your free time over the rest of your lifetime. Most people listening have that sort of capacity if there's something you really want done. That's the sort of person I have been in the sense that I've always had a number of projects I thought really should be done. And if I couldn't convince other people around me to do them or to join me or to support me, I could just do them myself. And my main question has been which of these many projects I should devote myself to. And uh, for the last few years, this book, The Age of M, has been uh, the project. But I'll less try to convince you that that's the project you should work on or any of the other projects I personally work on is the one you should work on. I'll just say, if you think there are a number of neglected projects, things that should be done, things that are worth doing, you can just do them. You will have a long enough life and enough wealth and uh, capacity that even in your free time as a hobby, you can do great things in a lifetime. I love it, and I love that my side project has gotten to intersect with yours, Robin. An excellent challenge. Encourage people out there to take it and to check out the book. Once again, that's Age of M. Thank you so much for coming on, Robin. Great talking to you. We just went deep with Robin Hansen. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day. Hey, what's up? Thank you so much for listening to today's episode with Robin. I hope your brain is firing, you are thinking about some things that you haven't thought of before. That's the goal. With getting someone like Robin on to talk about his book and his ideas, I really appreciate you listening in, and I hope that you'll continue to do so. Make sure you hit that subscribe button, whether it's on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast player you're listening to this on. I really appreciate that, and I really appreciate you checking out our forthcoming episode with John Thornton. John Thornton is the CEO of Astrobotic, and they're doing some pretty cool stuff, sending stuff into space. Not anywhere close to my expertise or jurisdiction, but I learned a lot from talking to him, and I think you will too, as is the case in every episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I'll catch you next time.